I'm Anna Marie Cox. And I am the hat. You are the shoe. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm a shadow of my former shadow. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Neo-Malthusianism. And behavioral ecology. Today we are starting season three. Season three, Dan. Season, season three. Season three. Season three. Season three. I don't know why you would chant that. But I don't know. It is but what like, we are doing. Yes. It's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Thanks to everyone who's made it possible. Mm-hmm. We love doing the show, and we literally couldn't. Well, we could. We could literally do it without them. We could, we but it would be very sad. It, we could literally <laughs> do it, but figuratively, it would be a sad and pathetic move on yeah. our parts. It, we would not get as much joy as we yes. Do. And we do thank you, the listeners, those of you who, uh, particularly, are patrons on the Discord, who make it clear that you seem to enjoy this content. We do like to provide it. And we are starting season three off with a bang, Anna. How are we going to start it off? Well, we're going to talk about Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, the, the film. The film, not the TNT show. Just you can cool. call it a film. Yeah. Sure. It's a film. <laughs> it was made largely in foreign countries. It's a film. Yes. And it is the beginning of cold sci-fi winter. Ooh. Yes. I can do it. There we go. Sound effects. On point as usual. Yes, we are crushing this. 2023 <laughs> is getting off to a good start. And Cold Sci-Fi Winter is our answer to, of course, Hot Sci-Fi Summer. It's a little different in that Hot Sci-Fi Summer was... Really more of a vibe thing, Anna. I mean, like, you know, it wasn't hot in terms of temperature. It was more hot in terms of, like, you know, just things. Like the, the properties that we discussed were not in heated environments right they just had the vibe of hotness exactly whereas these are literally cold we've chosen these things to talk about both books and films based on the idea that it's pretty cold outside and that temperature has a profound effect on whatever sci-fi ecosystem slash universe we are talking about Yes. So we'll be starting with Snowpiercer. Next, we're doing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which was a suggestion in the Discord. And I love it because that's the first genre fiction I really fell in love with. I'm excited to reread it yet again. I've probably read it. Dan, I've probably read it 10 or 15 times. Oh, wow. Whereas I have never read it. So I'm looking forward to, you know, reading it and, and commenting on it. After that, we are doing John Carpenter's The Thing, which is, I think, another property that, Anna, you have seen a bunch of times that I have only seen bits and pieces of, and I vaguely remember being scarred by the experience as a small child. It's pretty scary, and also there is alien on dog violence. So it, it could be scarring. I, for some reason, still love it, even though I'm very sensitive to that stuff, as people probably know. But it's it's one of Carpenter's better movies. I mean, I actually, we, I mean... I love John Carpenter. I think even yeah. his stuff that's kind of Drek is really fun. So this is, and this both is not fun yeah. and not Drek. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually better than not Drek. But yeah. after that, we're going to do The Gone World by Tom. I refuse to remember how to say his name. It is, Sweat- I believe, Tom Sweaterlich. 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 Of course, Tom Sweaterlich has sweater in the name. Yep. It is a noir sci-fi Involving time travel, which I kind and, of love. And There's a lot of elements. Yeah. And presumably coldness, not just presumably, Dan. Yeah, there is yeah, actual yeah. coldness. Okay. It is a chill brought on by the end of the world. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I read it a couple of years ago and immediately wanted to do it for the show. I remember being very satisfied with the way that it juggled all of its various kind of genre elements, which is it's a neat trick. 
to pull off. Excellent. And then after that, we are doing... Well, we're a little uncertain. So one possibility is we can go classic. We can do The Empire Strikes Back. Obviously, you know, presumably anyone listening to this knows the the cold element from that. We could also choose to do Alien v. Predator, which I think is not even remotely close to being a good film, but does take place in Antarctica, I'm quite sure. And then after that, I believe someone on the Discord made an excellent suggestion for a, a the way to potentially close out cold sci-fi winter, which would be... Groundhog Day. <laughs> which makes sense. If we're extending cold sci-fi winter to longer than it was originally planned, then Groundhog Day makes total sense. And then we'll just keep doing Groundhog Day. And it'll be... <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> we would just do it for the next six weeks. I actually would admire a podcast that was... The, the, the whole point of it was just re-watching Groundhog Day that over would and be, over and over. That would be a lustrous podcast, is the way I would It could it. be good. In the right yeah. hands, I think it could be good. It's it a, a jumping-off point for commentary on it, existence, You know what? Obviously. 2023 has barely begun, and we're already like brimming with new ideas on it. I'm feeling, I'm feeling really good about this. <laughs> and our new idea is to do something over and over and over. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So other changes in 2023 include our social media presence, Dan. Correct. So you can reach us on social media. I am still on Twitter, but I am not necessarily going to be using it all that much. There I'm at Dan Dresner, but I am also at Mastodon and Post.News. I'm also doing other things like writing a substack. I'm trying to disprove honest contention that that doing a substack is the wrong choice for me it's not a wrong choice yes. it's just i hope you're prepared for the substackopolis i you know i've invested all my crypto assets in it and i'm really confident that it's going to work out on it that's all that's i just I believe we're we're having we're in a newsletter bubble it's possible yes and it is unsustainable i someone i was talking to tried to figure out like how much money it would cost to like keep up with their favorite authors. It's a lot. If they yeah, paid yeah. for every yeah. body's newsletter. Yeah. And it's it's almost as if you wanted to just pay for one thing where all those people were writing for a single entity. I know, I know. I think in my case it it <laughs> leave it this way. The the advantage for me of doing Substack is that it's not my primary source of income. And if it was, that would be very, very scary. Yeah, um, you are very lucky to not be yeah. an actual freelance writer, Dan. I'll tell I mean, you that right now. Yes. Which brings me to what I'm up to. Yes, what are you up to, Anna? So I am still writing around. I will be appearing a lot more frequently in Texas Monthly this year. Cool. I've never done Psst, Texas Monthly. Perhaps on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. They actually, oh, I'm for, I'm for sure on a regular basis, it's just a question of how often. Oh, I'm excited. To, it's a really great magazine. I'm excited yeah. about it. Mm -hmm. And I'll be around doing political writing elsewhere. But I've also started a writing workshop. So if, if people... Mazel tov, Anna. Thank you. It's wonderful. I'm really having a good time with it. I've already done one session. Another one starts this week. And it's sort of a strange thing to cross-promote, I feel like. But... <laughs> You all out there, if you like listening to me talk, wow, do I have a deal for you. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. You can find out more about it at my website, which is honoreecox.com. And I would welcome, I really would, actually, there's a couple of people who are podcast listeners who are going to be in oh, the good. workshop this winter and so. in case you're looking for my substack, it is called dresner's world and it is pretty easy to find on google 
We will probably not spend this much time on our various outside projects in the future, but things have been changing. We wanted mm-hmm. to update everyone. In fact, speaking of updates, Dan. Yes. How are you? I'm good, Anna. I think 2023 is, is starting off on a, a reasonably good note. First of all, despite the fact that it's cold sci-fi winter, it's not actually all that cold today as we are recording because it has been bitterly cold before and it is eased up somewhat. Also, all of the various things in terms of dealing with the end of the semester are gone. And now all I have to do is panic about developing, you know, course materials for the new course that I have developed or said I was going to develop for the spring. And a new course prep is, takes a tremendous amount of work. Does and it so, not involve zombies? No, it's not about zombies. Do you teach non-zombie-related courses? I know this sounds weird. I do teach, in fact, non-zombie content. Yes. This is a course about uh, economic statecraft, which is, believe it or not, the topic of my original dissertation. So, you know. (laughs) I was going to do snoring sounds. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, uh, Totally fair. Totally justified. Hey, sanctions are hot now. Except Uh, not true. Except not true. I mean, the reason we are friends is that I actually am interested in that So Anyway, but a new course prep is a tremendous amount of work, and I am looking forward to doing it. How are you, Anna? I'm good. I will say that I am not as maybe stressed as you are in preparing my course, Mm -hmm. because I've been teaching that workshop since 2015, believe it or not. So... It's it's the format of it is the only thing that's a little bit challenging is is uh, making it Zoom and Zoom doing friendly. it for yeah. people who are interested in taking just purely this writing workshop. I, I used to teach it at treatment centers hmm. and where it was kind of a part of the therapeutic process. And it's still therapeutic, but it's more centered on writing and less on like the journey. So that is really exciting for me. I'm loving getting ready to do that. I love teaching something that I don't know if I ever thought I would get to do on a regular basis. That's really great. When I, when I left grad school, I find it very energizing. I know not everyone does, especially people have been doing it for a long time. No, I find teaching for me is a lot. In some ways it's like the grind of the baseball season, which is there are weeks where I feel like I'm slumping. There are weeks where like I'll give a lecture and it's like, Oh, I totally biffed that. I can't believe I said that or like whatever. And then there are weeks where it's like, I can do everything. Like I am like just crushing it. And yeah, even after 25 years of doing this, that's still how I feel. And then there are the times when you see someone like get an idea. Oh yeah, that's the best. Or make an improvement that you're able to show them. Like what if you did this or what if you thought about it this way? That is honestly one of the best things about teaching is when you, when you, it's not when you're instructing them what to do. It's when you're sort of, pointing out the path a little bit and then suddenly they find it and all you have to do is just watch them walk it just vigorous head nods for me exactly for listeners this it really is kind of magical Mm -hmm. it it, and speaking of yes magic no magic's not really in this this is this is a pure like hard hard science yeah i was gonna say yeah this is well Mm. Although, mm. yeah, if you, if you, it's supposed there's to be no hard magic. science, but if you... We'll just say there's no magic. That's a good way of putting it on it. Yes, 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 yes. But let's get... So to- it's hard sci-fi. Like, yeah, why are we doing it? Why Why are we talking about Snowpiercer? So when the... when I think, Anna, you were the one who came up with the idea of doing Cold Sci-Fi Winter. And when I think you suggested that, this was literally the first thing that came to mind back in the dead of summer when we were originally talking about this. As I said before, Chris Evans has made some legitimately interesting sci-fi choices. This is certainly one of them. And it's also directed by future Oscar winner Bong Joon-ho. And it's an unusual film. It's got a legitimately international cast. And given the not ton of money spent on this, it's 
there are parts of it that are just like really did make my jaw drop. He really is an amazing director. When I was doing research for the story behind the story, I found some cool anecdotes and I will get to those in a bit. But of course, the real reason I was excited about this is that I'm never going to turn down a Chris Evans selection. <laughs> never going to turn down. He is the best Chris. Oh, that's quite that's... all the Chris's. He is the best Chris. Okay. Uh, follow him on Instagram. Uh-huh. His dog's name is Dodger. He posts a lot of Dodger content and a lot of him and Dodger content. As far as I can tell, there is no one else in his life. <laughs> Just saying. Give Anna a call, Just Chris. Saying. That's I think, I think that's pretty much what she's saying. <laughs> All right. So let's get to this question of do you need to watch this before listening or should you? Because these are two different questions. The first is whether there are plot spoilers that would ruin the experience for you. The second is whether we think it is worth watching. Anna, what say you? Stop right now if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Go watch it. Come back. It is definitely yeah. worth watching. It, this is my second time through it. And while I saw more flaws, I also kind of was able to see some of the tricks that he uses and the cool little like, I don't know. Dan, what do you call director stuff? We are so <laughs> rusty. I think that's called artistic shit artistic or something. Artistic shit. You know? I was able to yeah, see the artistic go. shit that he's up to. <laughs> so go watch it if you haven't seen it. Watch it again if yeah. you have seen it. Dan, what do you think? I tend to agree. Like this links to sort of previous experience watching it. The first time I saw this was in a theater, which I think added to the experience. This is really a movie that I think probably pops even more on the big screen again because the set design is so uh, amazing. It's also a really interesting cast. I do want to give a shout out to the actresses who really bring it for the smaller roles in this film. Alison Pill is in this movie for a one scene basically as a truly demented school teacher and she's just arresting. Ko Asung is Yona who is the daughter of the sort of principal Korean character. She's great. And uh, there's an actress, Emmy Levy, who plays the assistant Claude to Wilford, oh, um, who yeah. has barely any dialogue and like nonetheless absolutely crushes the role. It's like it, you you remember this actress and you remember this performance. And I, you know, it's just like there were just so many small, like, you know, just incredible spices in this movie that I really did enjoy. What was your previous experience on I saw this at home. I can't remember exactly when, but I know it was pretty deep into the Avengers franchise because right. it is weird to see Captain America in this context. <laughs> he had been Captain America, I think, for two movies already. At least. This was post-Avengers, yeah. definitely. And I think it was post-Winter Soldier, too. I think, yes, I think there were two. Yeah. Maybe yeah. three. So he's like deep into being Captain America, right. and he's very much not Captain America. <laughs> he's anti-Captain America in almost every way. And a lot of people are impressed by his performance in this movie. Bong was impressed by his performance in this movie. And it's interesting to me, he's not known as a good actor, though. I mean, people will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a good actor. Like, people agree he's a good actor for a marvel film yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, it's yeah, always yeah, kind of like yeah. but that but he's a hunk he's a hot that's mainly yeah. and he's yeah. cool and like has he does cool stuff in real life and he's nice and, and mm-hmm. i wonder if he's going to have like kind of a another arc of his career in the silver fox mm-hmm. era where he gets oh like we talked about this with chris pine yeah um and don't worry darling yeah yeah, yeah. george yeah. clooney that, I, where he's taken a little more seriously yeah. like as an actor mm-hmm. or he'll just stay hot i mean those guys stayed hot they just have gray hair that's true anyway yes. we now have to talk about how cold this movie is and we mean this literally 
Yes, for sci-fi winter, it is worth delving into just how cold the setting really is. I mean, are we talking about a little bit nippy, or are we talking about, like, life-threatening and, you know, you can't be outside? So, in this film, Anna, how cold was it? Pretty cold, Dan. <laughs> Bong himself has says that it's yes. negative 80 degrees Celsius, which is negative Ooh. 112 Fahrenheit, Jeez. which is a lot colder than it ever gets anywhere on planet Earth right now. Wow. That said, uh-huh. it regularly gets to negative 130 degrees Fahrenheit with wind chill in Antarctica, and that is negative 40 degrees without wind chill. And according to science on the internet, <laughs> I looked all Always over. a dangerous sentence to say. I looked all over, and I found science okay. on the internet. All right, yeah. AKA Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And according to the scientists at Reddit, you could freeze an arm, quote, nearly solid in 10 minutes at that temperature. Wow. So at, at now, 100 minus now, yeah, that's fair enough. Would okay. a train function at that temperature? That is a question I thought people might have, but they did not. <laughs> <laughs> there. I, how do I put this, Anna? This is a really interesting movie, but I never bought the central premise of it, which is a train that circumnavigates the globe. And I think, like, you know, that's one of the, the like, it's it is a credit to Bong that I really enjoy this movie as much as I did, because that never quite works for me. There is so much hand-waving that your hand, yeah. the hand falls off. Like, yeah, the hand freezes <laughs> off. freezes yes. and falls off. Absolutely, yes. But if you're willing to ignore the frozen hand... There's some interesting there's, stuff. There's some internal stuff that I also think gets waved away, which yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about. We should, but let's first get to the story behind the story. Anna, this is an unusual film. It, it's a, the legitimately international cast. It's a, a non-English speaking director. And I think it wasn't made, it didn't, it only cost like 40 million to make or something, which I'm still kind of stunned by. So how did this come about? Bong Joon-ho you might know, listeners might know, as the Oscar winner directing Parasite. Mm -hmm. I will say, when he won for Best Picture, he gave a speech that I I feel like he was, I felt attacked (laughs) personally by his speech. I can't believe he went after Anna like that. That was a dick move. He said, once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. Mm. Point made, bong, point made. (laughs) I will watch more foreign films. Good for you. He already had two big international hits, Korean language international hits, by the time that he was making this. The Host in 2006 and Mother in 2010. This was not something that people felt like they were taking a chance on. I mean, they they didn't need a lot of money to make it. It was filmed largely in the Czech Republic. (laughs) And where they got actually, they got tax breaks or whatever it is that countries do to lure in people to make films there and speaking of luring in people to make films actors wanted to be in this this was not a case of having to beg borrow and steal actors there was an interesting case with chris evans however he was brought up by a casting director i think they knew they needed probably a star of some kind right right? and bong did not initially buy into the idea he Hmm. then saw sunshine uh, which is one of the movies that he's in, one of one of Chris Evans' interesting 
choices. Sci-fi choices. Interesting sci-fi right. choices. And he said that also uh, Chris Evans was a director. And I think he must not have actually seen the movie that Chris Evans directed because it got really bad reviews, but maybe he was attracted to the fact that he was a director. That he actually had directed a film. He actually directed a film. They got along great on set. He described Chris Evans as sensitive, quiet, and introverted. And Dan, the biggest problem with Chris Evans on that set, (laughs) his swole bod. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you're coming off doing The Winter Soldier. You are just a hunk and slice of beefcake. What is... What are you to do with that if you were supposed to play, presumably, an emaciated passenger That's on right. That's right. That's so got to be tricky. Yeah. He just wears a lot of layers, I guess. <laughs> the other thing that... It's awfully cold on it. I mean, it makes <laughs> sense, true. you know. Although yeah. you can still kind of tell how beefy he is. Like, it's one yeah. of the places where you just have to kind of roll with it. And yep. there's... This movie is good enough that you roll with a lot. I, I, I want to offer a fun trivia fact here, oh. which I, I just learned. Sure. So... Do you remember at the very end of the Avengers, the original Avengers, you know, there's that the the last after credit scene is they're eating at the shawarma place. Yeah. You know, yes. And if you recall, you see Chris Evans just he's not actually eating. He just has his hand on his his chin and he's just sort of sitting there. The yeah. reason he was doing that was that he was filming Snowpiercer. And then they shot this like literally they shot that scene like apparently like during the press tour or something. So it was like only a month before. And he wasn't release. eating? It wasn't that he wasn't eating. It was that he had his beard. And so they put his, you know, they were able to put his hand on so like it's obstructed that way. And that's, you know, so that's the overlap. That shows how much of an overlap. That is a great piece of trivia. I thought you would be curious to know that. My piece of trivia is that I had to look this up. In the movie, he he says he's 34. And I was like, he can't be 34. Uh He can't. And indeed, he isn't. No. When that movie was made, he was 32. Oh, huge difference on him. My God. That that was a real stretch for him acting-wise. That's that's well done. Well done. But you agree, right? That doesn't... I don't know. Maybe I'm an old lady. He doesn't look 34. He looks like a child. Anna, I think He's we actually realize now that like all 34-year-olds probably look like children to us. But yes, I grant you, like even in Lives Out, for example, which is you know done in 2019, he doesn't look 34 in that. So Yeah. yeah it's since he's in his 40s now. Yep. Still single. Call me, Chris. Call Anna, Call Chris. Me. Okay. Call me. Yeah. Also, Tilda Swinton is in it. She was highly involved in creating her character. She really wanted to be in it. That role was originally envisioned for John C. Riley, which <laughs> would have been very different. Yeah. She suggested that the character have really big pendulous boobs, which is a choice that I am glad they did not go with. But apparently, they did make prosthetic boobies for her. Okay. Which were worn around set by Jamie Bell, who plays Edgar. Good for Jamie. Yeah. Tilda Swinton has said her character is based on Hitler, Gaddafi, Berlusconi, and Dan Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. That's just me. It is fair mean. enough. But, but, yeah. but fair. Tough yeah. but fair. John Hurt actually said that Bong was one of the best directors he'd ever worked with. Hmm. I had to look up the list of people that John Hurt had worked with prior to working with Bong. Okay. Ready? Yep. Hit me. David Lynch. Okay. Ridley Scott. Whoa. Alan Parker. Uh-huh. John Huston. Oh my. Sam Peckinpah. Whoa. Stephen Frears. Wow. Gus Van Sant. Jim Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. Robert Zemeckis. Uh-huh. Lars Van Trier. Mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro. Uh-huh. And Steven Spielberg. <laughs> okay. Quite the list. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Good for apparently. Good for very good. Everyone involved talked about what a what a good experience this was, which you having done this for a little while, mm-hmm. 
is really rare yeah. to find such a uniform description of of an unprompted like uniform rave reviews for the experience of filming. No, it's interesting. We've done films in this on this podcast that were like total messes while they were filming, but turned out great or what have you. But so, yeah, it's good to know that, that you know, good to know there was good vibes on the set, warm vibes on a cold set. Yes. Uh, you spoke about the set design. There's a reason why it feels so true, which mm. is that it is true. They built a 100 meter train set on a gimbal. Mm. And the goal was to have it move continuously oh, wow. while the actors were on it. And so one of the things that apparently happened is getting off of it, they had like sea legs, you know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. couldn't quite walk. And this is really interesting. And of course, you know, you, after someone points it out, it's obvious, but the entire thing is filmed tail to tip. Mm-hmm. When you, the action is horizontal, mm-hmm. the tail end of the train is always on the left. Yeah. And the head of the train is always on the right. That's true. It's very rare. I don't, I, there might've been one or two shots from a different angle, but I don't recall them. There's some, like the fight scene has, the fight scene has has a couple different angles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The fight scene has some above shots and everything. And there are shots, there are shots of like, like with the tail behind the camera and the, and the, yeah. And And there's shots looking backwards and shots looking forwards. But when you're looking at at a horizontal cut, you know, cutaway of the train, it is always shot tail to one side and, and head to the other. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit of further evidence that Harvey Weinstein is a terrible person. This is on the scale of things, like a one, yeah. not a 10. But he did demand that the film get cut. He wanted 25 minutes removed, which would make it like 90 minutes, I think. Ooh. He wanted a voiceover, which we know is a bad sign. Yep. He also wanted what is a strange scene, mm-hmm. I grant you, the scene where the combat officers dip their hatchets in the blood of a fish. Yep. He wanted that removed. <laughs> Who knows why? However, what I love about this story yes. is that Bong told Weinstein that his father was a fisherman <laughs> and that the scene was a tribute to his father. <laughs> and so he had to keep it in. Okay. Credit to Bong for, for, for you know, snowing Harvey Weinstein under. Yes. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And... IP is a flat circle, as people probably know. There is a TV series based on this as well. It will have its fourth and last season next year. It is the final scripted drama to be produced by TNT ever. RIP Rizzoli and Isles. <laughs> Excellent. All right, let's move on to Chekhov's What's It? This is the thing that we see very often in the first act of the book slash film we are uh, reviewing that winds up being somewhat important towards the end. Anna, what do you have? Chekhov's Chronal, Dan. <laughs> Chekhov's Chronal. Fair enough. Yes. For, you? It's Chekhov's phone. Eh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Because you see that at the very beginning. I like mine better. Yeah. Oh, no. I understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Shall we actually talk about the plot, Dan? Sh- let's, we- let's, let's see if we can speed our way through the plot the way that this train speeds its way across oceans, question mark? <laughs> yes. All right, let's start with Act 1, All Aboard. On July 1st, 2014, a day that will live in meteorological infamy. More that I'm sorry, I want to just break here and say I've already said neo-Malthusianism and meteorological and I've crushed it both times. I'm just really You have about that. in a way that listeners <laughs> might not realize how impressed I am because really they don't hear the outtakes <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> but I have not had any, uh, you know, outtakes for most of words. I repeatedly get <laughs> not very difficult words tangled up. Right. So 
Anyway, very on, impressive. Dan. This... No, there were no outtakes testifying yes. right here. Okay. No outtakes. He just just said those words in the syllabic order that they're supposed to be said. But on that date, more than 70 countries launched CW7 into the atmosphere in a geoengineering effort to solve global warming. And boy, did they solve it. It works too well. And soon afterwards, the world froze. Humanity's last survivors were those who boarded the rattling ark that is Snowpiercer, a train that circumnavigates the world and is owned and operated by the tycoon Wilford. 17 years later, there is a super rigid cast system on this train. At the bottom of the bottom of the barrel is the tail section, comprised of those who boarded Snowpiercer without a ticket. Led by Gilliam and his right-hand man Curtis, and Curtis's right-hand man Edgar, they plot how to revolt and move up the train. You can't really blame them either. Their lives are... not great, Anna. They live in squalid conditions, subsisting off of gelatinous protein blocks. Train cops, overseen by Minister Mason, keep coming back and absconding with violinists and small children, like Tanya's son Timmy. To punish any insubordination, the train cops freeze the limbs off of those who act out. Plus, the tailies are receiving subtle encouragements via messages hidden inside the protein blocks. Anna, one of the things I do like about this film is how it starts with the drabbest, dreariest setting and then opens up as the film goes along, as we see sort of the, the more first-classy uh, compartments. But the set design and makeup are extraordinary. I really believe that none of the actors in the tail section had bathed during the entire production. They look filthy. Yes, Octavia Spencer, who is in this movie, yes, as one Tanya. of the many yes. amazing actors uh, in this movie, said... We are all covered in smoke and dirt from years and years of not washing and particles in the air. And we are all the same color, if you look at it. Mm. I want to emphasize she said that, not me. <laughs> it's an interesting point. Yes. And I think actually not unrelated to some of the things that Bong is saying mm. with this movie. He's he's not a... There's some subtlety in his stuff, and then there's some not subtlety. It's a good combination, I think, of yeah. not subtlety. And there's subtlety. a lot of not subtlety, and it's not like a bad thing. It's just like you know, well, it's just not subtle. Yeah, it's, it's just, just and he, but he, you know what, kind of makes it okay. It what it doesn't feel like you're being hit over the head is because he has such a great sense of humor and he's so witty. Yeah. So even when he's saying super obvious shit, he's done it in a clever way. Yes, or so. as actors doing it in an incredibly clever way. So I would say that this is. Only biggest problem mm -hmm. with the movie is that it was real. I kept on getting taken out of like, were they really starving for 17 years? In part because yeah. the whole swole Chris thing. <laughs> it's not and like Jamie Bell looks terribly emaciated either. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. all, none of them look yeah. like they've been subsisting on protein Gilliam bars. Gilliam does look like he's only been subsisting well, on protein bars. Well, yes, John yeah. Hurt. John yeah. Hurt looks like he's subsisting on protein bars on a good day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It would actually struck me, and maybe we can talk about this if there's IR in this movie. I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about that later. Is I don't know if it felt like they'd been living under 17 years of oppression. Like, mm -hmm. they seemed pretty perky. That's fair. They, I mean, the fact is they are contemplating revolution. So you They know, are but, contemplating revolution yeah, yeah. in a way that I actually wonder if you would after 17 years of oppression. Well, let's put it this way. One of the things that the film makes clear is that there have been previous revolts. And so that's that is not, true. And in fact, that's kind of a central element key to the plot. And so that, I'm not, I didn't have yes, a problem with I that. Yes, and it's, it's, I guess what I kept thinking is that they seem way too surprised by how the guards react to them. Yeah. And they seem way, very surprised by the viciousness of the guards. Mm -hmm. You know, like at this point, the guards have been taking children away from them for years and years. You would think, although I wonder if the children thing was somewhat new because, as, which we'll get to, which is why they need the children might be because 
things that they previously didn't need the children for. Now suddenly the, the, the demand might be relatively more recent. But yeah, I think that's a fair critique. Like we, It's not clear when you start watching this film how much the Tailies are used to the treatment they're getting. Yes. That's yes. the way I would put it, yeah. And that brings me to sort of this is related. And again, I I basically let go of this. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to spend a little time here yeah. talking about it, which is I am very curious about how things got as bad as they are and what point they started at, you know, like. You mean we, we get the a fil- little bit of this the well, within the within the within the film? Well, we like, get that we with do, the Chris Evans monologue we toward do. the end, although that's there's problems with that. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> big. And, <laughs> so there's part of me that wants to see like how it became what it was and it because it, things must have started out pretty bad yeah you would assume if this so. is how it is 17 years later right. and my main piece of evidence for this is that apparently there was already a special arm freezing hole <laughs> in the train right like how when you, they started like like exactly like <laughs> i mean this this is again where like it's not only like you can't believe that someone had been designing a train to do this circumnavigation but also that oh you know what i better have armholes because we're, we're gonna run special into, arm freezing we're gonna run into some problems there yeah with like a you know flange yeah. and stuff yeah. yeah also again kind of gonna let this go no scientist i think would ever say all life became extinct okay but it's not a scientist writing the right the, i know but thing. it's like but it's it's important for the plot that's true in yeah. this actually if there's a critique of capitalism in this movie i mean i don't know we'll talk about it later it may be kind of important that this is an obvious lie fair enough and uh value of practical sets for sure oh yeah that's just what i'll add here just it 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 is very the grime is tangible yeah and again in fact arm freezing scene is really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and hard to watch and i give him a ton of credit for creating that level of discomfort without actual gore Yes, exactly. Like, it was funny. Like, that was a hard thing to watch, but it was also not so unpleasant that you couldn't, you know, like, it, it made you switch off. Or he, he finds an interesting balance of, like, I would call it, like, goreless gore. Yeah, like, yeah. there's not, like, viscera and stuff, but there's enough, like... He, ma- he lets your mind do the work for him, and that's, yeah. a, that's a smart way Very, actually, John Hurt compared him to Hitchcock, and that yeah. is a good point of comparison to Hitchcock. Yeah. All right, moving on. Moving on. Uh, oh, I did. there was one last thing, which is I, the second time I watched this, I did like, and you brought this up as well, there's a nice little exchange between Curtis and Gilliam where, where Curtis says, you know, explaining that, that uh, Edgar shouldn't look up to him, saying, I'm not who he thinks I am. And Gilliam says, few of us are. And that was a nice little foreshadowing, which I'd forgotten yeah. about. It, it's a very clever movie. It, yeah. it, there's in some ways the whole thing is very self-contained and all makes internal logical sense it's almost like a closed ecosystem Anna. Ah, ah. <laughs> dan has read the script yes let's move on to act two happy new year i'll just grumble silently here <laughs> realizing the train guards have run out of bullets from putting down previous insurrections curtis and edgar decide the time is ripe to launch their assault they manage to jam the gates of the last four train compartments open Following the instructions of their mysterious supporter, they free Nam, a prisoner. Oh, sorry, sorry, Karen. Following the instructions of their mysterious supporter, they free Nam, an imprisoned former Wilford engineer who can hotwire the compartment doors open. Nam agrees to do it in return for first freeing his daughter Yona, and second payment via Kronol, a industrial waste product of the engine that is also apparently a narcotic. They start to move up train car by train car, adjusting to things like windows and accessible water. 
They run into Mason and her BDSM-clad henchmen, leading to a truly surreal battle sequence. Everyone starts hacking each other, and then they break briefly to celebrate passing the Ekaterina Bridge, which means another year on the train. And then they go into a tunnel. At this point, the train cops have the tactical advantage because they have night vision goggles. Curtis and his forces rally with torches, however. Mason tries to retreat, and Curtis chooses to grab her rather than save Edgar. Mason, now a prisoner, agrees to help them move up the train so long as Curtis agrees to kill Wilford. Anna, is now the right time to talk about how fucking good Tilda Swinton is in this film and in general? Just the line reading of... Happy Ekaterina Bridge, you filthy ingrates. I just I just loved. She really leans into the grotesque into this performance, and I am totally here for it. She's great. And yes, yeah. I'm always happy to talk about her. I've I've been meaning to rewatch Michael Clayton oh, yeah. because of uh, Andor, and maybe this will actually put me over the top to rewatch that. It's it's not exactly a comfort movie. No. <laughs> but it does have George Clooney in it. Yes. She's great, and I also think she's one of the things that sells the plot. Yeah. Because we really have to believe that they believe in the oppressiveness of this culture, right? Right. We have to believe that it, things have become so dire, that their subjugation is so complete, that they don't, they, while there's semi-regular revolts, the, they don't have to use their bullets very often. They don't have to use violence very often, mm-hmm. right? That, that there is just a complete control from the top. Mm-hmm. More on this later. Yes. I completely love the fight scene. Mm-hmm. I I'm always impressed when someone finds a new way to do a fight scene. And this was a new way. How can there be new ways to do fight scenes? This was a new way to do a fight scene. Mm -hmm. Have to say, I'm kind of okay with sacrificing Edgar. (laughs) Not because he's a bad guy. I just feel like uh, more movies should... This sounds terrible. More movies should do this. (laughs) More More movies movies should should, kill Jamie Bell, apparently. More movies should should have, like, the realism of, like, you can't save everybody and not everyone dies, like, a super heroic death. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, like people got killed because that was really violent and hard right no it's true like you couldn't have that hacking tra- i mean there, that is a gory scene not gore in terms of viscera but just there's a lot of blood and you know yeah. it's a brutal fight and the idea that none of the characters that we then the speaking characters were going to die before that made no sense so yeah i yeah. agree they, that had to be yeah and of course as you know i am always interested in the sci-fi representations of addiction mm-hmm and this one's kind of a bait and switch. Yes. To be sure. But but it is However, a drug. And it, I, 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 I was curious. Yeah. Like, one of the things I liked was it's not that you see it all that often, but occasionally you see Nam and Yona, like, just take a whiff of the chronal and clearly it, it, it works for them, I guess would be the way to put it. And I yeah. did like that. Yeah. It is a drug. Yeah. It's also industrial waste. Yes. It's a little on the nose, <laughs> but I kind of love the idea that we as a culture are addicted to to industrial waste <laughs> also it kept looking like pool cue chalk that was how- it did look like pool cue chalk yeah but you said this is we have we are addicted to carbon-based fuel we're addicted yeah. to creating this stuff Fair enough. i love it love it okay let's move on to act three this is what happens when you make noise in the quiet car despite gilliam's warnings curtis decides to take tanya nam yona and a small group further up the train Oh, the train cars they see, Anna. There's the greenhouse car, the aquarium car, the meatpacking car, and the elementary school car. There they encounter a truly demented schoolteacher and her demented class, learning about all things Wilford. Actually, Anna, this is a good moment to talk. One of the things I actually did like about this movie was the sort of almost quasi-religious 
structure they set up for Wilford, which does make sense. I believe that that was an entirely plausible thing after being on the train for 17 years. It totally makes sense. They would have set up this deification of Wilford. I was more doubtful about that, but then I realized I had too much faith in humanity. Yeah. And... <laughs> And thought about all the various cults that have sprung up over the years and how easy deification is, really. Oh, please. It's so, like everyone who's like, you know, saying Elon Musk is a genius for destroying Twitter. Oh I mean, it, yeah. it, it is basically oh my God. the same thing. Yeah. The, yes. Yeah. Yes. I had not really thought about Wilfred as a tech bro. Oh, he's a total works. tech bro. No, no, no. Like, yeah. I, it's admittedly, it's a train car, but it, it, you have to think of him as a tech bro. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's the, that, was, that was how I thought of him. Anyway. With the New Year, the New Year's eggs are distributed, but it turns out to be a cover for working automatic weapons. Allowed to pass through Curtis's group, the captured train cops seize the weapons given to them by the person carrying the eggs and slaughter the tailies, including Gilliam. Curtis kills Mason and his contingent presses forward. They are pursued by Chief Goon Franco, I like that name, intent on avenging the death of his son, younger Franco, at the Katarina Bridge. Curtis, Tanya, et al. work their way through multiple cars until Franco catches them in the sauna car. In a savage fight, Franco kills Tanya and almost everyone else, but Nam and Curtis stab him into unconsciousness. They proceed to the front of the train through a dizzying array of different rave cars, bar cars, and chronal den cars. At the front, Curtis and Nam have a heart-to-heart. -heart. Curtis reveals his not-so-heroic origins in the tail section. Nam reveals his dream. He thinks the cold is lessening outside and intends to use the chronal as a bomb to open a door to the outside. So, Anna, two questions. The first is, which car was your favorite? I think mine was the combination bar hairdressing salon car. And then the second, I do want to talk a little bit about those two monologues, because I'm not entirely sure they worked. But what was your favorite car? Fish car. Fish car was cool. Love the fish car. The fish car was it's, cool. It's gorgeous. I also love the little uh, sushi. like the just the, I love the little sushi stanchion. Yeah, yeah. However... However, I can't hold it in any longer. There's really no such thing as a closed system. A closed like a ecosystem. truly closed system. A, clo a truly closed ecosystem. Yes. And the fish car <laughs> is actually an illustration of that. Mm -hmm. Like she, Mason sort of points to it as like, look, see, here's the enclosed ecosystem. And we have to be very careful about how much we take it, how much we take out and how much we put in. Right. But they take things out. Yep. <laughs> that means it's not closed. And she reveals that the water system is not a closed ecosystem, that they get water from the outside, from the ice and snow. Right. So it's not a closed ecosystem. And the, all of this talk of it being a closed ecosystem, at first it just drove me crazy. And then I realized, oh, I think maybe we're supposed to kind of see through it. Ah, uh, interesting. It's a lie. It's the lie that their control is based on. Yeah, I don't know. Like, this is where... And this goes back to the, the the sort of two the dueling monologues between you know Nam and and Curtis. I'm not sure if this is we're supposed to see through it or if this is sloppiness, because there is a part of uh. it that doesn't quite like. So take Curtis's monologue, which, and I think one of the the Discordians asked us this question, which was it supposed to be intentionally funny? Because I have heard people sort of laugh at that scene, and it's not that Chris Evans doesn't do a good job of delivering that monologue. It's that the monologue itself doesn't entirely make sense. It's not entirely plausible. And so, like, it goes back to your original question of how could they have spent, like, you know, so many years on the train like that? And I think part of the problem is, is that it so stretches incredulity that I lost my suspension of disbelief in that scene. Mm -hmm. I think 
that the sloppiness with the closed ecosystem must be intentional because he talks about it so fucking... I mean, the script is just full of references to it. And yet, at the same time, there are clear evidence that it's not a closed ecosystem, right? right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if... I'm I'm reading a little into this, I'm sure. But to me, it is a creation of scarcity. It's a creation of a system that demands the order that they've decreed. They're making it seem like this is the only way things can be. Mm-hmm. This is how it is. This is I am I am the hat. You are the shoe. It's a closed ecosystem. Oh God! Sorry. The number of times they say in this film everything in its place or everything is you know, but I, I think yeah they're making it making it seem like this is our only the only way we can do it. This is the this is it. Sorry. I guess this is one of those things. Not that, really even sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Maybe but. this is our different takes on it because like you think it's done as a way to show. See, it's it doesn't actually have to be that way. Whereas I think. Uh, the problem is I think you're supposed to believe that that's how, like, you know, like it, it's mm. too confining of a system, but like, it just seems like they the deck is so stacked so that you, you favor the way that Bong wants you to favor it that like, I, I, I felt more manipulated as a result, I guess. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I guess mine is a more generous reading. I'm also yeah. kind of doing a little bit of a postmodern, like, who cares what Bong intended? Like, <laughs> this is how I'm fair. seeing yeah. it. Yeah. Death of the author, man. He died on that train. Who died on that train? <laughs> Bong died on that train. I'm going to read this how I want. Okay. No, no, that's fair. But I think it is, whether or not he intended it, I think that is what it is something that is illustrated here, mm-hmm. which is that it is systems that control people. Yeah. Not people. And they rely on this idea of a closed ecosystem as, as the real weight, not, not bullets, mm-hmm. but this idea like we'll all die. Right. If, we, if you don't do it this way, we're all going to die. Yes. I also want to point out mm-hmm. that people thinking that there's such a thing as a closed ecosystem is one of the reasons we have the climate crisis. Fair enough. People think that they can do things and it won't, it won't, oh, it's just here. Like just our country's air is dirty, you know, or I'm just going to do this one thing and it's not going to upset everything. Mm -hmm. It's just, we're all in our own little ecosystems and that's not true. True. So. All right, let's close this out. Thus ends the lesson on on that particular thing. Although I may have more to say. (laughs) Let's close out act four, opening the gates. Before Nam can light the chrono bomb, Wilford's assistant Claude comes out and shoots him. She takes Curtis to see Wilford, who is cooking their steak dinner and prepping to throw an awful lot of truth bombs at Curtis. They include, first, Gilliam and Wilford were in league with each other. Second, the uprising was planned to thin out the population so as to avoid overpopulation. Third, because critters succeeded beyond their plan, Wilford orders the slaughter of most of the tail section to preserve some sort of class balance. And fourth, Wilford wants Curtis to succeed him. Curtis seems for a moment briefly tempted, but Yona overpowers Claude and rushes into the compartment. She opens a floorboard to reveal Timmy, Tanya's son, working on the engine as a slave. Appalled, Curtis punches Wilford and sacrifices his arm to rescue Timmy. Curtis gives Yona the matches to light the fuse for the chrono bomb, while Nam fights off Franco and the partygoers from another car. Curtis and Nam use their bodies to protect Yona and Timmy from the blast. The explosion triggers an avalanche, the destruction of the train, and the death of almost everyone on board. But Yona and Timmy survive and see a polar bear, so I guess it all works out in the end. Um, Anna, I didn't like this film's denouement for several reasons uh one of which was the idea that this was like the heroic choice when in fact it just 
kills almost everyone on the train. But another one, I think, within the context of the film is that Chris Evans, his character, is in a nearly catatonic state for most of the last act. And he's fine acting shocked and appalled, but it kind of would have been good to have seen another register. I agree. Yeah. I noticed that myself in this viewing, in part because I watched most of it and then had to go do something and then watched most of the last act on its own. Uh, and it made it more noticeable yeah. that, like, wow, he's just sitting there. He's just sitting like, there, <laughs> shell shocked. Like, for most of the time. He's just sitting there. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't mind the ending. Okay. I remember not liking it at first, the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, for some reason, it didn't bother me. I remember also hearing rumors of a grimmer ending, which I guess would that satisfy you, Dan? Did you want a grimmer ending? Is that I don't what know you if wanted? I wanted a grimmer ending. I, it, it's it was the choice made, and like again, this is where I I felt I wasn't as angry about the ending this time as I was I think the first time I saw it. But I remember the feeling like it, I could see Bong strings pulling me, and I didn't. I think like I reacted against that. Hmm. So. I had heard these rumors of an alternate uh, grimmer ending, and I thought maybe that would be the ending of the French comic this is based on, which I forgot to mention earlier. Ah, mm-hmm. It is based on a French comic. Mm-hmm. I think the reason I forgot is that when I looked up the French comic, it's just completely di- It's not, it's just different. It's just very, very different. I, you can't even sort of say grimmer, not grimmer. There's just, it's it's French. You know, French. This is an international yeah. production, but I do I I I'm growing enamored of the prospect that there could be like a franchise version of this where like, you know, how does Snowpiercer end in France versus how does it end in Germany versus how does it end in Mexico and so forth. Although really, when we're that dirty <laughs> underneath <laughs> we're all the same. Yep, there you once go. we become once we board the train, mm-hmm. except for class, yep. except for class. There class is the only distinction. Otherwise, we're too dirty to tell the difference between ourselves. I did want to mention, mm-hmm. and I think this is kind of important, that Andy is also a slave to the machine. He is the other child. Yeah, you see two children. In fact, actually, Andy is, is an even spookier moment because, like, yes. there's this tiny little car, like, or, or cupboard that opens, and he sort of walks out in a catatonic state to go into another part of the the engine. And so, yeah, that, in some ways, that was even more disturbing. I think that disturbed Curtis mm-hmm. even more than Timmy. I think that that is the thing that actually gets him out of his catatonic state is he sees this he, he can't stop him. Yeah. That's like, right cuz he keeps well, yelling I mean, after he'd him. He already and, yeah. stuck his hand. He'd already started he'd already started to rescue Timmy but right. he hadn't lost his arm yet. Yeah. And I think it sort of galvanizes him when he sees he's unable to save Andy. This movie does hold up. Mm-hmm. It does. Like nitpicky ending I'm not sure how else you would have ended it. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, yeah. My problem might not talk- be with the ending than with the overall structure, I guess, which I also liked, but like it, it as I said, like I'm not entirely persuaded by Bong, but go ahead. Well, well let's let's talk about the overall structure yeah. and being persuaded. Because I want to know, Dan. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, there's just one last thing for us to do. Tally up the numbers. And those numbers say there sure is some IR in this film. In fact, I would say that this film contains not one, not two, but three different theories of international relations. And they all sort of intermix with each other. The first is the idea of international relations as a hierarchy rather than anarchy. So I've said this before, but like generally speaking, when we talk about modern international relations, one of the central presumptions is anarchy. There is no world government. There's no sort of overarching structure. But in fact, there is a lot of international relations research that argues that, in fact, it's a much more hierarchical structure than we think of it. And there have been past examples of this. So 
think uh, the role of the Catholic Church in medieval Europe, or think of what's called the Tian Sha era, in which China was sort of the overarching actor in the Pacific Rim for, you know, more than a millennia. And in this film, clearly, you know, as Mason and Wilford and even Gilliam, uh, in the end, it turns out, you know, articulate, there is supposed to be a hierarchy here. And that is like said constantly, you know, as uh, as on a reference, you know, particularly by Mason. So that's certainly one element of, of international relations here. The second element of international relations is, in fact, the neo-Malthusianism, which is to say that, you know, Malthus argued that when population outgrows resources, the vices of mankind are required or will eventually kick in to prevent overpopulation. That can be due to war or homicide or pestilence or what have you. It is clear that within the structure of Snowpiercer, Wilford and Gilliam have set up a structure whereby if there is a problem in terms of overpopulation, the valve that sort of reduces the population is in fact uprisings. So the Revolt of the Seven, the McGregor riots, I think they reference those things, and in the end, the Great Curtis uh, uprising. So in some ways, this is the most brutally neo-Malthusianism I have seen in in a film. And of course, Malthus was wrong in a lot of ways, and so that's in some ways, you know, points to the the sort of flaws that Anna brought up. But I think in some ways the 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 most like, you know, the deepest level of IR here is the sort of truly postmodern, post-structuralist critique that is the end of this film, that argues that, in fact, the Malthusian logic is bullshit, that the idea that the train itself, you know, is a closed ecosystem doesn't really work, that we've all sort of accepted this structure. And Anna, I suspect you might have some thoughts on that. I do, <laughs> Dan. So, so I have a question for I you. I do. Anna. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? And I could barely keep a straight face while asking that question. Dan. Yes. I hate that I know <laughs> that there is a critique of capitalism in this film. <laughs> I struggled for a long time about what quote to use. I really did. <laughs> I was going to go with capitalism is how I know that babies taste best. Oh, God. <laughs> but kind of like my choice, obviously, I had to share the second one, too. Bong is not shy no. <laughs> about his his beliefs. It is an ongoing theme in his work. And in fact, he credits the universality of our misery under late capitalism as the reason why his films are internationally successful. Mm. He was asked about this a lot after Parasite became such a hit. Mm. And hit the quote that got repeated the most is there is no borderline between the countries now because we all live in the same country. It's called capitalism. Wow. Oh my God. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. like I, I know he shamed you, but at the same time, clearly he's your source of sucker. He, uh, he's not wrong. As I said, there's also some lack of subtlety yeah. uh, in what he does. And his message is so clear. I'm not going to like sketch it out like super fully. I'd rather talk about some of the details and of course my personal kind of read on it i would say that i can sum up his argument is capitalism is bad mm -hmm. which i agree <laughs> sure some of the touches that i liked yeah i love that when they come across the middle class cars they're empty oh that's interesting it's true you mean like the where you like briefly see the dentist and the tailor and like no but oh. when they have those, those cars with windows they're clearly oh, yeah, like yeah. They're, they're not as nasty as the tail right. and they're not as nice as the front because what happens in late capitalism the middle class disappears uh, they're not replaced oh it's funny i didn't away. think of that as the middle class cabin i thought of that as the working class cabin because that's where i thought the security folks stayed 
I suppose, except it's empty. I, I thought of it as being, it depends on how you see middle class, uh, I guess. Fair enough. Okay. And if you consider workers middle class. Yeah. I, I also think it's interesting, this, the children as cogs in the machine, literal cogs in the machine. Mm. It does solve a problem that I didn't think about until I saw the kids. Which was? Why are there tailies on the train to begin with? Ah. Why, if it's... <laughs> Why Why keep them at all? Why not just release them if it's a closed system, you know, and you got to like have, you know, only so much of everything, then why are they even feeding them? Mm-hmm. Why, by the way, hot take, insects, not a bad choice for protein. Yes, I forgot that was one of the reveals is that the protein blocks are in fact made out of insects. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's more the, the way that they're processed than the fact that they're insects that I think is gross. By the way, small note here, again, like, Tilda Swinton is so goddamn good. The way she eats that protein block. Oh, yeah. Is like, it made me sick. Oh, God. It was just perfect. Yeah. yeah. It was very, very good. Yeah. But again, insects on their own, not a terrible thing to eat for protein. Yep. But it really is like the, it was not a clean kitchen no. that they were made in. No. That was kind of the gross part yeah. for me is not the insects itself. Anyway, kids is why they have the tailies. And in fact, that actually kind of illuminates Chris Evans' monologue too, which is, at first, they got nothing, and then all of a sudden, they started feeding them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, why would you just all of a sudden start feeding them? What would? Why not? Why not just let them starve or eat them? You I know? think this is... This goes back to the problem I had with this. There's kids. Of, yeah. Gotta have kids. Gotta have... Gotta have... Gotta have extra labor power. You gotta have a labor in reserve, Dan. I guess. But again, this goes back to the sort of things where, like, it's the hand-waving, where, like... I'm trying to conceive of them originally boarding this train and then suddenly like, oh, they don't have spare parts. It didn't occur to them that, this, you know, you, you you simultaneously have to believe that Wilford was visionary enough to know that this was going to happen and somehow constructed a railroad track that could circumnavigate the globe while at the same time uh, not having redundant parts. So. Right. And also it would, it, the timing, the timeline is also kind of fucked yeah. up because he says the first few months they didn't get right. Food. Like I'm sorry, they're going to be dead after the first few months. Like that's not a that that's just. Well, and also, yeah. would a part break down in the first few months, no. and then they realize they need children? Anyway, there's a bigger picture here that Bong is going for. Yeah. this is like you're, you're right, and you're, but it does take one out, right? And that's too, that's what I'm. That's my it. critique of the, I guess. Yeah, but go yeah. ahead. Also point out, there's a, there's a, 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 you know, bang you over the headline. Uh, Wilford says to Curtis, you've seen pe- what people do without leadership. They devour one another. Well, it seems like people with leadership also devour one another, just not in quite so literal a way. Yes, that is That a they do point. feed them to the machine. Right. As far as the response to the post-structural critique, I do think, and I, I guess I would argue I think this is an intentional. I think Bong is saying we have to exit the system completely. Right. Rightly, yeah. you you can't it, is is because what the whole uh, idea of Curtis replacing Wilford means it's the system that's the problem. It's not the person. And I, I, also, this is credit to Chris Evans, credit to the script. I think too, mm-hmm. uh, it is believable that he might do it. Right. There's a brief moment, and this is I, you know, like there were a couple nice touches that Chris Evans brings to the the movie. One was there was it was believable that there was a moment where he was like, no, maybe I should do this. Um, so yeah, entirely fair. Because the way that he talks about the revolution that he leads yeah. isn't also re- isn't revolutionary. Right, like, and he's just he just wants payback. And to be fair, <laughs> this is my favorite. He's thing. He's not a class warrior. Like he himself, Curtis is not a class warrior. And this honestly is my favorite thing about Bond's film, both this film and in Parasite. One of the things he does is slightly subvert 
how you think of the sort of proletariat as they rise up. He's critical of them as well. He's not, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he's, an, he's an equal opportunity critic as a filmmaker. And I, I did appreciate that. It is problematic that his solution to the problem of the system yeah. <laughs> is we just have to kill everyone. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I, he set up this puzzle trap where the end is. And so, in conclusion, these two people are the only people who are going to survive. Like, I, it did. That was the part where it was like, I. In know. conclusion, in order to have a new utopia, everyone must die. Yeah, that doesn't quite. It, it's not yeah. a great. No. Not a great look. No. It does solve the problem, I suppose. I do think it's a clever movie in that it is a critique of the system, yeah. right? It is, It is. and again, I, I think there's something intentional about this harping on closed system and it clearly not being closed because there's other lies too throughout the movie. The idea that certain things are extinct, but they're really not extinct. Right. It's yeah. all of this information and propaganda that's used to control the populace. Yeah, As much as any physical force. Yeah. Fair enough. So I also want to point out that the tailies Mm -hmm. cutting off parts of themselves to feed the ones they love is a pretty great example of late capitalism right now. That's what I want to say, Dan. Fair enough. Don't know if you've ever felt like that. (laughs) (laughs) There have been times where I perhaps have felt like that. you You know what I'm feeling now, Anna? I'm feeling strange noises. Dan, you 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 dug these up from the Discord. I did. So these are these are notes. These are questions asked from the patrons. And by the way, you know, if you want to become a patron, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/SpaceTheNation and choose to do so if you're not already. We welcome more patrons. It's a fun thing on the Discord. Yeah. And we're going to do something special when we get to... 250. And we're getting, we're getting close. So, you know, yeah, we'll 200 and something right now. So let's get to the Discord and questions from Zach Gabal. What combination of quasi-anachronistic transport and climate disaster would be more preposterous than the one in Snowpiercer? For example, lava dirigible. <laughs> That's very good. Yes. And you know how much I like saying dirigible. Yes, so. you do like to say dirigible. That's true. Yeah, lava yeah. dirigible. Very good. What Zach. is yours, Anna? avalanche canoe dan <laughs> let's get in the avalanche canoe i am underwater rickshaw so i like it i like that too i like it i like it too uh bull city brian mm-hmm. asks what are your takes on geoengineering so i think we have similar takes i'm ambivalent i'm not opposed to it automatically i think there might be some first of all geoengineering is like ai in the sense that it's one of those terms that encompasses a lot of different things, some of which are probably pretty innocuous, some of which might be really, really bad. But I will say that that I am one of the the, the sort of subparts of the question that, that uh, Bull City Brian asked was whether one great power would sort of launch stuff in the atmosphere without cooperation of others. I actually don't think there would be any unilateral launch, um, if for no other reason that that would trigger a war on Earth. And so I think there would be some sort of climate change deterrence. As far as geoengineering goes, I highly recommend Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky. Right. Very, very good. It's about, it's a meta climate disaster <laughs> book. It's about man's attempts to solve climate issues. And uh, spoiler alert, none of them work out well. Yeah. So it's a very dire read, very well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, I mean, I'm, how am I going to say this? It's bleak, 
But I would say that one of the takeaways is there's a lot of people working on this. Also, let's put it this way. You know, we had some good news towards the end of 2022, which is the idea that of a viable fusion power. And so, like, I'm kind of, you know, maybe in a generation, we hopefully will not have to worry too much about this. And finally, we get to Dan Two Spaces Brennan, who asks, which is hotter, Chris Evans dirty or Chris Evans fisherman sweater? Well, Dan, on the subject of Chris and his hotness, I would say it's a tough call. You know, I'm going to go with fisherman sweater. I know that might be like very normy of me, but he's really dirty. Yeah, Anna, I got to tell you, to the extent that I have any of those impulses, it's easily fisherman sweater Chris for me. It's it's he's so good in that movie yeah. too. I haven't. Yeah. I'm saving Glass Onion. Actually, I might watch it tonight. I'd been saving it till I get my work done. Ooh, so. enjoy. It will, uh, yeah. it'll... Uh, Dan Two Spaces had a couple more. Oh yeah, questions. go ahead. Go go go. Uh, is class stratification required for post-apocalyptic society, or do people revert to old patterns? So. In any kind of, like, not just sci-fi, but, like, fiction, there needs to be some conflict, on it, And, you know, <laughs> that's an old reliable. I mean, you could go with race, or you can go with gender, or you can go with ideology, or what have you. But, yeah, class is always sort of a, a, a good old Class standby. is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And then he also asked, he, he, I, I think it's safe to say Dan also, two spaces Dan, although you're two spaces Dan. <laughs> that's true. There are two two space Dans. <laughs> I do two two spaces when I am writing. Drives on two two spaces. Yes. He asked about the mechanical redundancy on board, and I, I guess it's safe to say we both have some issues with yeah. how quickly Again, that was the machinery broke down. Yeah. All right. Okay, we need to get to the cold sci-fi winter energy scale. Anna. Dan, on a scale of one to a hundred Celsius. Mm. Or zero to 100, I guess it is. Was the movie a cold fish or a hot coronal blast? I'm going to give it a 75, I think. You know, I think this is a movie that I truly did enjoy in the moment. And again, there's a lot to to like about it. But I, I will say, watching it this time, again, like, I think I liked Parasite a little better, I think, is in terms of bong films. And so I'm not entirely sold on this. What about you, Anna? I'll give it, actually, I'll give it much, much higher. I would put it up in the, the B plus range okay. is another way that I think of 100 scales. All right, so an 88. An 80, 80, is that 88, 88 now? 85 when I was in school. 85 huh, was a B plus. Interesting. Wow. Oh, you're right. 85 was like a B. 85 is a 89. B, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'd give it a B plus. Okay. I'd give it like an 88. I, I, it's, it really stood up to the test of a second viewing for and it me, is, as many problems as I had. And it is a legitimately it is, interesting it, it film. It zips yeah. right along. That's true. It's just like... Yeah, I'm a little surprised to hear Weinstein... It's a well-made film. I'm surprised to hear Weinstein wanted it cut, because this is not a film that drags in the slightest. So, yeah. Oh! Nope. <laughs> it's pieces of a train that have been avalanched, fallen off the rails, yep. it's, much like this podcast. It's the debris field. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is where we talk about the stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about earlier. I don't have a ton, but Dan, what do you have? Um, so a couple of things, I guess. First, I was curious if Harvey Weinstein ordered the film to have that shootout between Curtis and Franco. There's that moment where they're like shooting the guns because the train is curved. Because that made no goddamn sense and was just a waste yeah. of ammunition. Like I couldn't like that was definitely something that, that should have been cut. And if nothing else, Curtis should have realized, I don't have that many bullets. I shouldn't waste them on this sort of thing. Also, they're both two way too good shots for people who 
don't normally use guns. So I had that problem as yeah. well about like how quickly everyone adapted yeah. to using that, guns, that no and sense. also suddenly everyone was kung fu fighting. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. very all very good at fighting and pretty swole yeah. <laughs> and that seemed that seemed like an unlikely outcome i really don't have have that much i did note that as nice as it is that yona yeah. and timmy have nice warm winter coats mm-hmm. i sure hope they brought gloves yeah. <laughs> also this was something that drove me nuts that timmy immediately has a form-fitting outfit as they exit yeah. the train like that that made no sense i'm sorry yeah, because they were both really long. Yeah. Like when they stole those, yeah. they were really long. Yeah. yeah it, it it once you start. This is not hard sci-fi. We sort yeah. of joked about when we when we opened this up it, up like this being a, a non-magical film. Mm, perhaps there's some magic. I would also say that the the CGI polar bear is the worst CGI in the movie. Yeah, like the CGI comes out a little more. I think watching it on television. This is why I think watching it on, on the big screen added something to it the only other thing i have to add is that ed harris is really great at the end as wilford i like the understated nature of his car it's not like opulent it's just sort of very almost marie kondo like in terms of the the thing also at one point claire shoots the gun i think and he goes nuts and then he says to curtis she's getting sensitive recently and i didn't realize for a second that he wasn't referring to claude he was referring to the engine and so that was actually really funny to me i don't know I have just a couple more things. Okay. Uh, one is, you know, the story of Curtis's violent past. Yeah. Why didn't they eat Edgar's mother? I guess because he she didn't taste as good. The whole story is like, they're going to kill the mom to eat the baby. Yeah, I was going to say like... And like, why not just eat them? If you're going to go around right, killing... Right, I don't think killing. babies taste that much if better, If you're, if you're, if you're go committing cannibalism, yeah. like, you know, yep. I'm sure mom was bigger. Yep. And... I do respect Bong for not doing a flashback for Curtis's story, which I think was probably tempting. Yeah. And I'm glad that it's not a flashback. No, that was fair. The only other thing I have, and I did like this, is that literally the very first image you see on the train is of a gun. And, you know, that, that again, it's not subtle, but also effective. Bong chooses violence. Yep. <laughs> I think that I think we're done. I think we're done. We're done. Yes. We're done with with Snowpiercer. Not done with Cold Sci-Fi nope. Winter. And oh. we're done with this episode. It's good to be back. Mm-hmm. We had to we had to get some kinks out, but we'll be back next week with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And until then, keep this channel open for more. <laughs> <laughs>